Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Deprado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. Men's Corporate in Sarno. Of course, an ancient history teacher would begin that way. The notion of a healthy mind, a healthy body, understanding how we work and then thinking about how we might learn as a result. Glenn Whitman is a history teacher at St Andrews Episcopal School. He's also the executive director for the Centre for Transformative Teaching and Learning. He's the co-author with his colleague in Kelleher of NeuroTeach, Brain Science and the Future of Education. He's a co-designer of NeuroTeach Global. He's a really, really interesting thinker about the way in which we can take our understanding of mind, body, and education science and help it to improve what it is that we do. I can't wait to talk to him. I'm excited. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little bit about our Series 9 sponsor? Sure thing, Adriano. A School for Tomorrow is a globally recognised network that supports students, educators, school leaders and their communities to thrive in the new world environment. With their strategic educational development program, they seek to identify and define strategy, structures and operations for a preferred future. They support the educational aspirations of each school community through the development of a high performance culture. To find out more about how they can help your school, you can visit the link in the description or contact their client associate, Kyle, at kyle at circle.education. That's kyle, K-Y-L-E, at circle.education. Let's go. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again. Uh, I cannot believe we're finding ourselves in glorious Melbourne, out of lockdown eventually, and we've got this glorious weather that we're encountering every day. Is it sunny there in the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy? Look, it's always a little bit overcast here as we contemplate mm. the social ills of the world. But more importantly, is it sunny in sunshine? Look, it's always sunny in sunshine. And, and I'm glad that it is because I'll, I, I'll be able to head out later on and, and get some faux or, or some type of nice, very uh, Asian delicacy that you're very jealous of in our part of the uh, of the suburb. Anyway, right. en enough of this nonsense because uh, because I know that later on you've got to get to some tofu and kale for lunch. Uh, we've got a wonderful guest as you've introduced him, and I'm going to launch Glenn into our very very first question. It's a question that we ask all of our game changer guests. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you have gotten to where you are today. Well, fantastic, and uh, I can't speak much about the weather out here and. Just outside Washington, D.C. in Maryland, but uh, glad to be here. My journey, uh, I'm still wondering how I even got on this podcast, but I appreciate the offer. And maybe my journey will justify this time. I, uh, I went to a small liberal arts college in, in Pennsylvania called Dickinson College. Didn't know really what direction I was heading towards as a, as a career. Grew up outside New York City. From a family sort of approach, I was probably supposed to be a lawyer, an accountant to make a lot of money. Somehow I got lucky where um, a returning uh, friend of mine who was back on campus when I was a junior at college said, hey, Glenn, you know, you love you love sport. You, 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 you're a varsity soccer player at, at college and you also love history. 
um, have you ever thought about being uh, an independent school teacher in the United States? And my answer was absolutely no. I didn't even really know much about the independent school world. I grew up in a public school um, outside of New York City. Um, and I sort of put a little pass on that. But uh, I did somehow fall in out of college. I applied to teach at every independent school west of Mississippi. And uh, in August, I got a call while I was actually hiking in the Grand Canyon asking me would I want to be a varsity soccer coach, football coach, um, and teach some uh, advanced placement in United States history in a school. The, in the, the real world guy in Glenn, the real world guy. Hey, we're, we're coming. We're coming. We're going to be a dangerous <laughs> threat in, in Cutter. I said, sure, I'll go to Spokane. It's near Seattle. I've heard a lot about Seattle. Little did I know that Spokane is nowhere near Seattle. It's uh, five hours away. But uh, it's certainly, uh, I fell in love very quickly with being a, a teacher uh, of middle school students and high school students, um, as well as uh, a, a football or soccer coach, however you want to heckle me, go ahead. Um, and then it just sort of kept going. I, I did a master's at Dartmouth College in between um, a teaching chip at a, a Blair Academy in Western New Jersey. And I've been at this school, St. Andrew's Episcopal School, just outside of Washington, D.C., our nation's capital for the last 24 years. Still a teacher. Um, I still teach every day uh, a history class to 15-year-olds currently. Um, and I also run the leading teacher-led school-based uh, science of teaching and school leadership uh, academy in the United States called the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning. Glenn, thank you very much for sharing that story. And of course, I thank you for reminding my esteemed colleague that the world game is the world game. And oh, the one yeah. that he supports, yawn, yawn, the, yawn, one, yawn. the one that he supports rugby is a game that they throw the ball backwards to go forward. Makes no sense to me whatsoever. But just listening to your story, what I'm interested in is uh, we're only scratching the surface here because you've just articulated to our listeners and to us how long you've been in education. What I'm interested in is why have you stayed and why does that matter? Yeah, no, it's a great it's a great question. Uh, first of all, I, I'm not too sure if there's or if there's more challenging yet more complex opportunity or career, um, and more importantly, can have an influence on the life trajectory of individuals than maybe a teacher. Maybe you put it next to a doctor uh, in the states, but I really wanted. I mean, selfishly, if you call this selfish, I wanted my life to. Ma- I want my life to matter. Yeah, and I want my life to matter for others. I think education is one of those places where I can pursue passions that I have. I, I love history. I think history has so much to tell us or to inform us about the present. But I also love each challenge and opportunity that a new day or a new student or a new school year brings. Uh, I mean, I could, as a history teacher, I could teach, you know, the Constitutional Convention one way in one year. But then the next way, my, my clients, my students are different. You know, I'm adjusting. So I think there's a, a tremendous amount of personal satisfaction and challenge that I love and mattering that I really feel has given me a, a purpose in life. And that is to ready the next generation of individuals for not only college, which is a, an ultimate goal for all our students at our school, but also for the, for the world they will inherit, which we all know or, or, um, is, is, is a lot different than the world, not only of the last 50 years, but also the world of actually probably today. Um, so I, I love that purpose that education affords me. Um, and I've also been really blessed to be at, at, so far, haven't been fired from any, three different schools where I've been able to grow um, and learn even more about this great craft uh, and the art and science of teaching. When you had the, uh, the good fortune of taking on a, a football team, in a, in a coaching capacity, 
What did you learn about your ability to connect and build relationships with the young people in your care? Love the question. I mean, you know, sport is so important at, at certainly schools in the States and schools around the world. It also affords the coach or coaches an opportunity that I would argue all teachers are jealous of, right? Is that we have the privilege of time, right? I teach 200 minutes a week of history. I coach at varsity girls soccer 10 hours a week. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the privilege of time to make connections and build relationships with the student athletes, to be able to uh, practice deeply um, and think about, you know, each step a little more methodically as opposed to the race through a school day or uh, a time, time class period that could be anywhere from 40, 60 or 80 minutes is truly something um, that I think all teachers would yearn for and are jealous of sport coaches. Yeah. Uh, I think it's sort of ironic that we have 10 hours a week for coaching and only 200 minutes for uh, teaching, but I won't, I don't want to address that. But the one thing I is, is no, it's no different. I, I think the sport field is the ultimate classroom, right? Uh, we know from research what sport does uh, for creating dopamine boosts and for, for getting kids excited. We know physical activity is so important and movement is so critical uh, to the health, well-being, and longevity of our kids. It's why we're talking about the classroom differently. Where's movement in the classroom? Uh, where's engagement in the classroom? Where's building these long-term relationships uh, with the athlete coach or the uh, teacher-student happening in our schools broadly? I look at my role as a coach as the same thing as my role as a teacher. They're actually both coaches. Um, I just, I'm a coach of history for some part of the day and a coach of soccer or football um, in other parts of the day. There's so much psychology associated to being an effective coach, isn't there? There there is so much psychology about being an effective classroom teacher and practitioner, enabling us not only to connect to young people and their identity, but to help them uh, as their great champions on the sidelines, you know, the mentor, the coach cheering them along to help them ultimately unlock, uh, you know, their inherent possibility or at least discover uh, their self-efficacy and their adaptability skills. I want to now turn the conversation to your book, a book that you have co-authored with Ian. The book is titled uh, Neuroteach Brain Science and the Future of Education. And having read that book, you know, it's this, this terrific practical guide using theoretically sound research-based principles to design schools, classrooms, to ultimately work better for the individual. It's interesting that we've gone from a conversation about a team sport. Now I'm going to, I'm going to come to the individual. How can we then best utilize that growing body of educational neuroscience research to influence a new narrative for a better normal in school? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the great opportunities as we think about the future of school that exists. In 2007, just a quick history, you know, our school asked itself the generative question, um, how do you take good teachers and make them great and great teachers and make them expert? And I, I love that question. I remember sitting at the table and I was like, that, that's a cool question. Uh, and I hope every school or district or even every business, you know, it, 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 it's not education um, dependent, so to speak, should be asking those questions. You know, and you can imagine our list was long. We, we had a list of about 20, 25 things. We got lucky, though. We got really lucky. 
And we had a throwaway question in a survey of like, how many of us have taken a, uh, a course on the learning brain, a read a book about it, or been to a seminar, did some graduate or undergraduate work? And the number was roughly about 20% in a self-reported survey. So my assumption is some people were lying just because I think they thought their boss or their head of school would read it and it might uh, impact their, their tenure or their, or, or their salary. But we, you know, our school went after this idea, what if we train 100% of our teachers um, in this uh, growing body of research-informed practices that's been called a lot of things around the world, right? Science of teaching and learning, mind, brain, and education, educational neuroscience, sometimes just neuroscience alone, which we would, we would push, push up against. But I would say the opportunity is sitting there because even current research that we've done, that number about 20, 22% is held up in a survey of about 5,000 educators we've done around the world. And we thought like, isn't this really ironic? Um, if there's one educational truth that none of your listeners in this world um, will ever be able to push against me on, and I, I feel free um, to email me if you want to. And it's not even in the classroom, it's in every industry, every business. Everybody will bring their brain to everything they do, to every day of school, to every day of the corporate world, whether it's in New York or Melbourne or anywhere else. So shouldn't we as educators or teachers know more about the organ of learning or even should leaders of industry know more about the, how the brains learn of their teams, of their employees? And I, you know, this, this just totally transformed our, our preschool through 12th grade school because what we were seeing is that research was sitting in journals. It was sitting in the presentations at the academy uh, at major universities but was not getting into the everyday classroom to inform and transform what we currently were doing um, with each of our individual students. I still to this day, and even more so now coming out of, well, sort of coming out of COVID, believe as we think about the future of school, elevating all teachers' current understanding of how the brain learns is an opportunity to not to elevate the social, emotional, and academic development of every student, regardless of their race, class, gender, sexual orientation, you name it. I think it's sitting there for all of us. And I think it, I think it overflows into industry as well. Um, we were talking to, just quickly, a pilot for Southwest Airlines a couple of years ago. And he was telling us how they train their pilots in monotasking. And I was like, that's good. First of all, I love flying Southwest. But I'm also glad that my pilot is monotasking and not multitasking. But here's a great example of research that educators should be thinking about. How do we create spaces where kids have some opportunities to monotask as opposed to being cognitively overloaded? So I just those are just two quick examples of how I think research can not only inform and transform the work of teachers such as me uh, every day or those um, in the industry as well. Glenn, listening to you talk, I want to dig a little bit deeper about the culture of school. I want to take two sets of qualities to start with, and then I want to dig a little bit deeper in a follow-up question. Schools where there is the promise of transformation are schools where the quality of hope, what, what Adriana would sometimes call audacious hope, um, prevail, where there is courage and kindness, where there are people being brave and people being generous of spirit all of the time. They also coincide with schools where there's a lot of curiosity, there's a lot of wondering, there's a lot of creativity. And you can contrast that with schools where there's too much order and there's too much discipline or there's too much structure 
people aren't brave, particularly not the adults, they're risk averse. The environment is not particularly kind and generous and compassionate. And quite often sitting under all of that, there's a lack of hope for the students and their future. Quite often there'll be anger, quite often there'll be despair. But how can we take the sort of work that you guys do and use it to build schools of hope rather than schools of despair? First of all, I love, I'm writing down like every phrase here. I love, I love the idea of schools uh, of hope and for students' futures, not ours, not the adult, uh, the adult now. Um, really like that. Here's what I would say. When I visit schools when, and they ask me like, what do you want from our, like as you're preparing for the visit, what, what would you like to see first? And I would say, give me your daily schedule. Um, I believe that is one of the key markers or indicators. If this is currently is, has the potential or is a long way off from being a school of hope. How, how, we, how schools from the youngest learners to the oldest learners structure time and the, and the daily life of the kid gives me immeasurable data to know what kind of school it is. Um, most of the schools, certainly in the States, are still designed, it's almost like a, a herding cows. I mean, it's, it's you know, very programmed, it's an industrial model, right? It's about control, it's about lack of trust for kids. And it's very much not brain friendly at all, right? It's about survival and compliance for most students. And actually the joys and passions they find generally are happening outside the classroom, even though you, know, you got a lot of great teachers trying, but class periods are too short. The school day is, uh, right, how can you go deeply and, and build in things like um, retrieval practice and, and design thinking projects and metacognition moments um, and have one-on-one -on -one conversations with kids in a 35-minute period? I laugh when schools have zero passing time for students. Um, you know, you know we have 10 minutes of passing time in our periods. That might seem a little uh, long, but now students, and I, this I think this is a school of future. Doesn't have to choose between going to the bathroom and talking to their friend and resetting after class. Start times of school. You know, the research around sleep is so important for the so social and emotional mental health of our kids, especially as they get older. But schools are still stuck in these really early start times in the States, at least. Whereas our school, you know, we start our first classes at 9 a.m. for our middle school and high school students. I also think is, you know, what, how we're training teachers and what we're training teachers in. The good news about the work we do is it's, it's sort of content agnostic. And what I mean by that is we sort of stay out of those, you know, those content wars that exist a lot in the United States, right? Should or should we not teach slavery, right? Or the, who won the Civil War? Um, you know, but what we know is the promising research and strategies in, in the science of teaching and learning allow us to be more efficient and effective and actually provide richer learning experiences for the kids. Now, there is this thing, though, that we have to get over as, as adults. Too many times, though, our framework for thinking about current school is our own school experience, right? This is why we believe if you elevate all teachers' understanding of the science of teaching and learning, they're going to be like, it's sort of that aha moment. It's that epiphany moment. Um, which I'm saying as the Jewish guy on the second night of Hanukkah, I just want my Jewish grandmother to understand I am lighting the candles tonight, just for the record. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and, and my, my nana would be thinking much the same thing right now. 
Just don't cut that out of this podcast. I need that. So, 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 what would be on the table at Hanukkah? I'm going to break you for a moment and say, what, what, what? Oh, what? oh my God! I, I can make a, a super laka. So bring it on around the world. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I know I can be defeated, um, but yeah, we are. We are. We, the lakas, you know, not good oh, for the God. heart. The cardiologist would say, mm, better luck next time. Uh, <laughs> and there's research. There's probably research on on, on low fat lakas somewhere in the world. Oh, it's, uh, well, lakas are all about social and emotional well being. You know, that's it's all about it's all about feeling good for the feeling feeling good in the world. There it is. Yeah. No, that's okay. but, but again, what what we're seeing, and this is what educators we've worked with around the world, whether they read NeuroTeach, which we feel privileged when people read it and, and, and pick it up, or they're using our virtual platform, is that as we continue to begin or elevate teacher understanding of the science of teaching and learning, they are starting to say, you know, the schools that we our, our kids are in are not right anymore. The way we schedule time is not right. The way we assess is not right. And it's truly not preparing them for, the, for, for their futures. Um, and I, and I, I'll just say to your audience, you know, this is the, uh, one of the most important opportunities facing us if we're gonna think about the schools of tomorrow getting into the, the heads and the hearts of, of current and future teachers, as well as current and future school leaders and policymakers, an understanding of the body of research um, about how the, the brain works, learns and changes and thrives. It's, a, it's an opportunity sitting there for us. You know, you talk about getting into the hearts and minds of students, and then you're starting to talk about to get into the hearts and minds of teachers. I think one of the challenges that we have is that the hearts and minds of many teachers is in the craft of yesterday, not the craft of today and the world of tomorrow. And, and they fell in love with doing a thing. And then we tell them we want to do something else and how they feel in and around it. It's, it's more than just that sort of conscious incompetence moment. It's more than a technical piece. It's a deeper front to their sense of what is good and right in a school. Uh, and their sense of order and their sense of their commitment to what they do. It's almost, it's almost like a, a, an insult to their honour as teachers. So you, you start to talk about things like using time differently, using virtual platforms to enhance what you do. There's all sorts of assumptions that are built in there. How do we help teachers keep their honour but move forward? What have you learned from the work that you've been doing? We sometimes talk about them as like micro wins, right? First of all, we got to get teachers into the space, right? And there's what we we know, we know a lot about professional learning and growth in the education space that carries over actually into other adult learning spaces, right? Um, three key ingredients, the Teacher Development Trust in the UK has done some great work in this, David Weston and others who, who we just love. Uh, put them on your list of, of future talks, better accent than mine from New Jersey in the United States. Um, professional learning has to be research informed. It has to involve thinking about real students and how it's going to Im impact the end user, which in education, you know, we'd be failed industries. We are the only industry in the world, I would argue, that doesn't think about the end user in everything we do. Would Apple do that? Absolutely not. Would, would any major corporation not? And then now the big thing about uh, professional learning is it has to be sustained and iterative. And I would argue multiple modality and multiple sensory, no different than what we know is good practice for kids. So the, the work of our Center for Transformed Teaching Learning is just that, you know, too much professional learning around the world is sort of butts in your seats, right? You clock in, somebody's up front, they speak to you, you might have a good moment, and then it's the one and done. And then you expect behavioral or teacher change or teacher practicing us uh, to adjust. We just know that doesn't happen. 
our approach has been um, really to think about different ways to scale individual teachers, schools, and districts around the world to get into this space. Remember, roughly only 20% by our research data suggests that teachers have foundational and accurate understanding of the science of teaching learning. So if this is if this holds up at 80%, uh, there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of opportunity out there. But more importantly, and here's, here's where I think we have failed to not only attract, but retain and develop within our schools, uh, the next generation of educators. And we're gonna have a serious pipeline of uh, teacher shortage in the United States, certainly. I don't know what it's looking like in Australia or other parts around the world, but we're, we're really nervous about this. When you can tell teachers that they are research informed and that they are using research to inform their practice, whether it's to use retrieval practice a little more to enhance memory, whether it's uh, to develop executive function skills for all students, right? You're professionalizing the practice in ways that addresses your issue versus that we actually dumb down the practice. We give teachers a script, here's your playbook, right? Go do it. As opposed to what teachers, they might want some structure, but they also wanna be able to, you know, like the Tom Brady's of the world, the audible, I don't know what it is for rugby. What's the equivalent for your sport? Cause I don't even understand that sport yet. Uh, but you know, teachers have to be allowed to audible uh, in their classrooms. Uh, we know expert teachers have to think on their spot and to adjust. So I would say, you know, those are things we're thinking about. If we can get research into teachers heads and hearts, we're automatically professionalizing the practice. The other thing is, you know, and we're, I'm a great example of this with Ian, we are just two teachers who started out as history and science teachers. And, you know, look where we are. I'm talking to you guys, or I'm talking to people around the world. Yeah, but but about... we feel, look at, Glenn, we feel the same way. I mean, you know, here's Adriano, a, a, an exquisite design teacher. And I, I probably went into administration because I wasn't a very good history teacher. But, you know, the opportunity follows you along the way and you go for it and you run for it, don't you? Yeah, but... And, and, and I, I agree, right? So we wrote a book and people read the book and, and it gets you invited to talk more. But I think a, an opportunity for schools of the future is to treat school, each individual school like its own Silicon Valley, where the teachers are the incubators and are sharing that work, right? So they're not gonna run to you know San Francisco in the United States to one, go make money to be innovative. They can do it on their campuses or their schools. Sure. But can I just, again, can I pick up on this? Because you, you know stuff, so uh, I want to ask you things. Um, <laughs> we've just finished a, a major research project in uh, South Africa where we've, we've worked with a whole lot of their schools. And one of the things we, we were exploring was, was teacher efficacy and purpose. And when we asked teachers about their purpose there, they gave us four answers. They told us that they wanted to help kids get to the next stage in their life, which sort of the pathfinders. You had people who would then list everything in their job and how they wanted to be good at it, and we call them the technicians. You've got people who just love teaching and love learning themselves or love their subject and want to pass that love uh, on. And so, you know, you can call them the, the, the vocational. And then we've got people who feel like they're servants to the students and they want to particularly role model values along the way. For all of them, it's this notion of making a difference. Not one teacher talked about research. Not one teacher talked about the notion of how we think and apply ourselves in our practice based on 
evidence of what works. All of them, I think, fundamentally are talking about relationship. Yep. So their motivation is, is, is entirely relational. And they're walking into that space to affect positive relationship. There's very little thinking about what happens after you've got that positive relationship and how there might be a science or a craft that's based on an external body of knowledge that if you do this this way, it might work better than if you did it that way. Or at the very least, you could run a little test, do a little action research kind of thing, a little micro study and actually test whether or not this works better than that. So the, I think the intent is there. But there simply isn't an internal monologue going on, going in and around. I wonder if I did this, whether it would lead to that or this or that. I mean, how do we help our colleagues to move from the relational, which is absolutely essential, to the effective? Yeah. So, so I, I think the answer for us, and I could speak from sort of the I perspective here, is you got to build and design for the uh, to make teacher friendly, next day applicable resources that have. Uh, enough authority behind them that a teacher's will will want to look at the footnotes. <laughs> I would hope they do, mm-hmm. but also will accept them and try them. Uh, and this has been my journey. I mean, uh, you know, I didn't, I had no clue what neuroplasticity was 10 years ago. Right. But I'm thinking about myself as a brain changer. I began class today. So today we return the school. Here's a great example. I've been teaching 24 years, right? We have uh, our Thanksgiving uh, break, which we just came off. So about a week off, right? So we have some natural opportunities for students to forget, right? If you asked me, or you looked at my classroom five years ago and how I taught the first lessons after the Thanksgiving break, I probably would have just picked up and kept going from where I was. How did I start class today? Well, first it was to reconnect with my students who I haven't seen in a week right? That is making sure every student hears his, her, or however they identify their name within the first five minutes of my class. The second thing I did was to do some retrieval practice about key names, dates, ideas that we need to keep carrying forward in the class, making the kids work harder than me. I'm just an example of how the research and a bigger toolkit has made me more effective in my practice with my student historians. So what we've been creating as a center is, so we wrote a book, NeuroTeach. That's one way to get this work to teachers. Certainly was one way we got connected. We have a, a, uh, an MBE strategies placemat. Uh, this one sort of page document where all the most promising research and strategies uh, are, are, exist. You know, we have a virtual platform um, that's another way to get teachers in the space. What we're finding, and this work really, um, started out of our connection with Mariel Hardiman at Johns Hopkins University years ago, is when we can begin or elevate the collective teacher efficacy, you just mentioned collective teacher efficacy, of a whole school, not just one history teacher or one arts teacher, but a whole school. We know the impact from some of John Hattie's meta-study work, and Great work. I know it gets it gets pushed around a little, and it's fu- it's fair. I think I would hope John would think it's fair as well. We know by raising all boats at a school, okay, how much more we can impact not only the social and emotional development of the kids, but the academic journey uh, of the students. I, I was going to ask you a question, Glenn, around you know this vision of a world that you're just describing, and 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 how a teacher's understanding of students' brains and how they learn, what it actually looks like. But you've given us a really good insight just then 
uh, of what that could be. So I'm going to take a different approach now and I'm going to share with you a little bit of my own learning around uh, neuroscience and, uh, and my understanding of it being this empirical study of the brain and, and the connected nervous system. And that the brain is this, this kind of organ that enables us to adapt to our environments, in essence, to learn. But there are critics of neuroscience, right? There are critics of neuroscience that fear that it represents kind of two fundamental things. One, a reductionist view that overemphasizes the role of the brain at the expense of a holistic understanding of, of the cultural life based on, on uh, interpretation and empathy. And then there is this other part that they're critical about, and it's a determinist view that our neurological inher uh, uh, inheritance sets us on a path that is unchangeable, right? However, a neuroscience perspective recognizes that each person constitutes, you know, this intrinsic or uh, intricate kind of system operating at a neural, uh, cognitive and at a social level uh, at, with multiple interactions taking place between process and levels. Listening to all of that, what do you believe are some implications that neuroscience has for education and the notion of being a continuous learner and unlearner? Wow, that's a great one. Um, I would say... So maybe this is not going to be the answer you expect. Mm -hmm. I would say the verdict is still out mm -hmm. of the of the ways neuroscience is actually going to be able to inform and transform the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, matter of fact, we really push back and get concerned when we hear people say and run around say neuroscience in itself as a standalone is this great panacea or answer. As I suggested earlier, maybe the, the most useful mindset uh, that, can, that can inform our work with students out of neuroscience is the concept of neuroplasticity at this point. That, again, might be a more layman approach, and I bet you there's neuroscientists listening who might say, Glenn, yep, spot on, or you got to read my paper, game on, either, either one. This is why, you know, it's really, I think, important when we present ourselves in the work of the Center for Transform Teaching Learning or the field, we often have fallen into the camp of uh, Dr. Kurt Fisher and others at Harvard's Graduate School of Education who, who talk about this as a, as a field of mind, brain, and education, right? Um, you know, that intersection of neuroscience, cog science, behavioral psychology, and educational theory, which as a collective body of research is still underutilized out there. I will say this though, I think the mindset of telling teachers that your work for good or bad has the chance to change and rewire students' brains is a fairly empowering and uh, a statement uh, for the students, uh, excuse me, for the teachers. And it's, it sort of says, hmm, my job really matters. And then when you start showing teachers a little more or re-educating them a little about uh, you know, neurons and myelination and how neural connections work and pruning, I, first of all, it gets teachers excited to talk a little differently about their craft and what might be going under these, the brains these kids bring to the classroom. So I think my response to your, to your really great question, uh, not a light question or, or a soft question at all, no. at this point, I think the verdict's out for the, for the everyday classroom on what neuroscience in itself is going to be able to do for us as educators and how we design schools of tomorrow, as well as for the experience of kids. I will, though, reiterate, if a teacher or school leader does not believe in the concept of neuroplasticity, then they should get out of education. 
You know, this particular series is all about the science of learning, Glenn, and uh, uh, we've got guests on this series where we explore cognitive load theory and we also push back and challenge that as well uh, because it's really important, I feel, that conversations like this lead to a healthy discourse to ultimately make us better practitioners, you know, and, and that's got to be the goal. Uh, but but I'm, I'm a huge uh, believer in, 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 yes, I agree that the, the jury is still out, but that there's so much initial evidence that is suggesting uh, the value of neuroscience uh, and, and, and something that we just definitely cannot dismiss exactly what you just said there in the finish. My final question to you is this before I hand it over to Phil for his final question and wrap this, this amazing conversation. Phil and I have been texting offline here saying we want to just continue this with you for hours, but we've got clients to get to very soon. So, so that just can't happen. But we're, we're so engrossed in, in what you're sharing uh, and your wisdom and knowledge. I'm just loving your energy and optimism about learning and young people. It's, it's so refreshing to encounter that uh, as a fellow educator. So thank you for, for, for that. But my question to you is this. Our, our Australian curriculum, alongside uh, our learning and subject areas, we have what's called seven general capabilities. Uh, and one of those seven general capabilities is critical and creative thinking. Critical and creative thinking involves, in the context of the Australian curriculum, students thinking broadly and deeply using knowledge, skills, dispositions and habits, such as reasoning ability, logic, resourcefulness, imagination, self-regulation and innovation in all learning areas at a school and in lives beyond school. This also includes an explicit assessment of metacognition. How can we better position the explicit exploration of thinking about thinking and reflection strategies in our schools? Again, I would just say it starts with, you know, how do you get at scale educators to even understand what metacognition is? Speaking from my journey, I did not know what metacognition was 10 years ago. You know, I, I said earlier, I didn't know what neuroplasticity was, right? And, and I'm a kid and I'm somebody who's loved teaching from day one and wanted to be really good at it. Um, so, you know, where, where do, whether it's in Australia or in states or anywhere around the world that's listening, how are teacher prep programs, teacher training programs or professional learning programs bringing promising research and strategies such as metacognition into the, the development um, of, of educators. Um, the Education Endowment Foundation in the UK has done some amazing work and really created some impressive uh, resources that's really sort of spreading this work around. I, I'll just say this, you know, I don't give an assessment where my students aren't thinking about their thinking as they're getting ready for the assessment or thinking about their thinking after they've completed the assessment. We know from research that from a cost and value uh, impact, metacognition is one of the best returns on an intervention or a strategy in classrooms. I don't know if there's data to say how many teachers around the world, one, know, know what metacognition is and are using it as part of a, a, a daily practice um, is out there. But again, this is why, I'm on this sort of journey with other educators around the world to say, look, here's this body of research that includes metacognition, includes memory, executive function, multiple modality instruction, you name it, does not include learning styles, we should name that at some point here, that is still being underutilized or misused because we haven't trained up teachers around the world um, uh, enough in it. So I, I see the promise of metacognition, but again, it's like the whole field it's that opportunity that's sitting for us 
And it's not even just metacognition education. I have these discussions with my wife, who's not in education. How does she help her employees as a senior manager think about their thinking in their field? The, the overlap is pr pretty clear. Metacognition should be part of any uh, professional journey uh, in any industry. I think part of the challenge with all of this, Glenn, is that when you're dealing with science, um, it's you're not dealing with instinct, are you? You, you know, and, and within any body of teachers, within any common room or staff room, you're going to find 5, 10, 15% who are going to jump at the latest thing. And they're going to keep jumping at the latest thing because it's always the latest thing. The latest thing, they might stick. For example, learning styles, didn't that stick, right? With no evidence behind it whatsoever, it, gee, it stuck, all right? You know, there's another thing that stuck. Totally uh, debunked. Yeah, another thing that stuck, you know, when, when I was at school was, was audio visuals, was, was videos, hitting play on the video machine without no thought as to how you might best do it. I think in all of this, there is a science and the science says incremental and iterative improvement over time, postulating a hypothesis, testing your practice and so on and so on. I think it's about openness and curiosity more than anything else. So I'm curious, what's next for you guys? What, what are you really interested in right now carrying forward? So look, the brain is not going anywhere in, in education. Whether we, whether we end up in an AI or VR world a little, the brain is the organ of learning, right? The metaverse. <laughs> well, well played, sir. Um, but it, it's interesting. Why I think our school has been so successful in this work for the last 14 years and our partner schools and collaborators around the world uh, have been in, is that it's not a sprint, it's, it's a marathon, right? Uh, and this incremental learning for the adult brain. The great news about neuroplasticity for, uh, is that even at the age of 52, so I'll out myself to the audience, I'm 52. But hang I, on, hang on. Another 52-year-old history teacher <laughs> whose grandmother made the best luckers in the world. There we go, perfect, man. Perfect. This conversation's becoming nauseous. <laughs> The good news about this is, uh, you know, my brain can still change at 52, right? The old, the yeah. neural myth, this is really important, I would argue. The old, the neural myth used to be your brain was set around 18, um, uh, right? So, which is great. Now, the slope of the learning curve, if I was going to take up a new sport like rugby or cricket or learn how to play the guitar, the slope of my learning curve would be uh, a bit steeper, certainly in that work. Um, and now I forgot your question. <laughs> no, I think we were talking about what's next, but I think you-, you Oh, what's next? No, oh, 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 next. Oh, I, I, well, so what's next for the center? We're working really right now to focus on uh, the intersection between the mind, brain, and education work and the diversity, equity, and belonging work. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, and, and here's why. And here's why. Too many times in the professional learning uh, in schools in the United States, they're treated as two different silos. Hey, this is the year of the brain. Uh, oh, but next year we're going to do uh, diversity, equity, and belonging. But we know certainly they, they, they intersect and connect very well at belonging. So a lot of our recent reading and research and, and work for our clients or the people we work with is around this connection between MBE. E and DEB, because it still goes back to what's first and foremost. If we can't create schools of the future where we think about emotion and cognition, well-being and achievement side by side, where every kid feels connected um, and feels like they belong, not fit in where they belong, 
Uh, it doesn't matter how dynamic or how many design labs or how many robots you got. We're not going to move the students in the directions in the past that will serve them well in their futures. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Adriano. I feel a collaboration coming on on belonging, I think. Game on. Game on. Excellent. Hey, Glenn, such a good conversation today. Such practical advice on how to think about the science of mind and body and education and how to apply it. Such enthusiasm. What a, what a great model of a game changer for all of us. Thank you for joining us today. Um, we're going to talk to you offline about doing something together on belonging because I reckon that'd be heaps of fun. Phil, um, Phil just before we do finish yeah. though, Glenn, 30 seconds. What have you learned by listening to Bruce Springsteen? <laughs> you beat me to it, Deprado. <laughs> well, the run, I, I don't know what I've learned, but the running joke of my family is that uh, I would leave my wife, who I love dearly for Bruce, Right. And she and she would leave me for Sting. I'll leave your audience okay. to figure that out. There we go. Well, I was. I think that says more about you than her. But anyway, there it is. Clearly, we've got more. We've got more to talk about. We've got more to talk about. Thank you so much, uh, Glenn. Um, we're very appreciative for the opportunity of of chatting with you. Thank you for being on Game Changes. My pleasure. Really appreciate the opportunity. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.